How do the design choices made in developing computational systems influence how we interact with those systems? How can we make design choices that allow for social media and other systems to benefit their users? And how can we rigorously validate the design choices we do make? June Park's work investigates many questions just like these. His recent work on generative agents, which proposed computational software agents that simulate believable human behavior, captured many people's imaginations. But this paper is far from the full story of his work, which has many important things to say about and implications for the field of human-computer interaction. We discuss his perspectives on interaction and selections from his work, including studies on slow algorithms and antisocial behavior in online communities, as well as Social Simulacra, a work closely related to generative agents. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you have comments, questions, guest suggestions, feel free to leave me a comment on Substack, or shoot an email to editor at thegradient.pub. But now, without further ado, June Park. June, I always start these episodes with a little bit of the guest's origin story. So could you relate to us how you got into AI in the first place? Right. So I actually ended up taking a bit of a long-winded path to getting here. So originally, I actually, um, all the way back in college, I actually did a major in computer science at first. I actually was a, a studio art major. So uh, a little bit distant from uh, from where I am right now. And then gradually, I got really interested in a few ideas uh, that were more around social computing. Um, so social computing basically has to do with creating social, creating computational systems um, that can connect people and that can allow people to have social interaction on the computational platform. So I got into some of those ideas that I really wanted to implement. So I started to take more, I started to get more interested in computer science and gradually more into the AI space. So after I graduated from my college years, um, I moved to Palo Alto. And there I ended up meeting James Landay and Jeff Hancock, who are professors at Stanford. Uh, so James is in computer science, doing a lot of really cool work around HCI. And he's now one of the, uh, the main key professors around HAI that we have, a high institute. And Jeff was doing a lot of interesting work around, especially he used to do a lot of research around deception and so forth. And he was just getting into this idea of algorithm audits and those kind of things that I was really fascinated by. So we started working together. And I soon realized that, you know, it's I often look to, towards my mentor at first to see what they are really interested in. And that was around 2020, AI and interaction was just become, becoming a really big thing. AI obviously was a big thing, but a lot of people then started to realize that now we have this really cool tool, AI systems and machine learning systems. So a lot of people really started to ask, what can we do with them? Now, that question was always there, but it was coming to be, it was starting to become much more obvious 
with things like HAI coming into the scene, especially around Stanford, but also many other institutions starting similar type of institutions and projects. So I got really interested in that. So I went to get my master's at UIUC with Kerekrahalios. So we've done work in that space for two years and I came back. And when I came back, um, I decided that I wanted to work with Michael and Percy when I came back to Stanford. And we sort of realized that, um, yeah, we might have a really interesting opportunity, somewhat of a unique opportunity, especially with all the expertise that are just coming in to this idea of what kind of interaction can we create with AI systems. So that was my sort of my start to my PhD. And from there on, we sort of to start to investigate. We now have these cool things called foundation models. What can we do with them? Like, what are the most out there thing that we can do? And that's how I got into this entire space, AI and AI plus interaction and so forth. It's interesting to note, at least kind of going through the set of papers you've written and the recent ones have really struck the imagination in lots of interesting ways, just how this kind of, as you pointed out, came at the same point where we were starting to see GPT-3 and all of these systems where everybody is like, this is going to have a pretty substantive impact on my field. And so I'm curious for you, as somebody who came in already with that interest in social computing, just how you think about the field of human-computer interaction a little bit more broadly, and how you see perhaps some of that evolution over the years in which you've been active. Right. So this is an interesting question, and it's it's been an interesting question for, I think, all of us, both in the interaction community and in the AI community. So the role of human-computer interaction in computation, and we've played a few different roles over the years. One of the main roles that I'm always fascinated by is human-computer interaction is one area in computation where we are much more explicitly about envisioning how people will use technology. Um, that's what interaction after is all about. And one of our main goal is to have a broad understanding of what is possible today, but be able to go a little bit beyond that to basically demo a future uh, that people might be excited about. Right. So one of our main role here is to get that imagination to pop. And some of the things that we were sort of interested in was, and I sort of alluded to this um, earlier, we start to see sort of this foundation models or large language models come to become a really big thing, um, especially um, I started my PhD when GPT-3 had just come out. So it was pre-GPT-4 and so forth, uh, and ChatGPT certainly, but it was after GPT-2 had come out, GPT-3 was in fashion back then. And by the time GPT-3 came out, I think a lot of people started to recognize this could actually be an interesting piece of technology. Um, but a lot of studies that we were seeing back then were just scratching the surface of what kind of emergent behavior we start to see in these models. So a lot of studies in 2020 that were on large language models had to do with reconstructing, we're trying to imagine if whether these models that we had trained just on broad data could actually complete tasks that we sort of knew how to do 
but it was still interesting that these models could do. So one really simple instance might be like classification, right? Large language models can do classification. We sort of found that to be interesting. And a lot of people, including myself, had looked into this and tried to imagine, you know, can we build a better classifier with large language models, something that we can really quickly prototype and demo and so forth. So that was the mode of, you know, how we used to look at things uh, in 2020. And that excited us, obviously. But ultimately, from the interaction perspective, these were sort of the tasks that we knew how to do for a long time. Now, classification, we never truly mastered. And there's been really interesting work, uh, some that I was involved in and some in the field that sort of says, you know, classification is not really a task that we'll ever master, especially there's, if there's disagreement amongst the people. But even beyond that, we, we still knew sort of how to tackle this to some extent. And I think what we sort of recognized was if these are models, if large language models or these kind of foundation models were truly to change the paradigm for interaction, then we, we, then we sort of need to go beyond that and ask what are the tasks that were simply out of reach today that we can actually try to tackle. And one such area was, for me, this idea of generative agents. Uh, can we actually recreate a lot of this human behavior but I think that's sort of the role that interaction community likes to play in many of these instances where we have piece of technology and we sort of, we think we know how to use them to some extent, but at the same time, when something's truly new, we really don't, or we don't know exactly how far we can extend its, its reach. And, um, and a lot of, when I feel like the interaction community has the biggest sort of uh, impact is basically demoing the possibility. So we're thinking all the way back to, you know, way back when, when we start to demo in, in the demo called the mother of all demo, we dem, um, some of the founders of this field demoed GUI interface and, you know, clicking around with a mouse and so forth. It was sort of those moments that we, that excited this community the most. And I think with this new technology coming in, I think we might have that kind of opportunity happening again. You certainly have captured a lot of people's imagination in that way. Another interesting facet of this, I think, beyond the let's extend beyond in perhaps some of the vectors that might excite people who are into things like game design is just the pure reimagination, perhaps, of what our interaction with these systems could look like. And I think you did a really fantastic job of this in one of your earlier papers. So your a slow algorithm improves users' assessments of the algorithm's accuracy, I thought was pretty interesting just because when we think about the way that we interact with basically any technology, but certainly social media systems in particular, I don't think that there is much discourse at all where people are like, I would really like this to go slower. I think that a lot of people seem to value the pure volume of discourse they can engage in, of information they can consume. And I do think recently there's been a little bit more of a, of a counterculture in this direction. But at the time of this paper, I'm, I'm curious just how you thought about some of the questions that you began to tackle in this question and about the idea of slow technology that you're building off of there. Right. 
Yeah, so this is an, this was an interesting paper. So this is actually my very first, first authored uh, full paper that I published. And um, we sort of had two motivations for writing this paper. One sort of thing was around this idea of slow movement, right? And that was just around when it's slightly different context, but even within academia, this idea of slow movement in general started to become a thing, I think, a little bit after we published the paper. You know, one context that suddenly came in was from the perspective of, oh, are we publishing too fast and those kind of discourse. But this idea of slowing down uh, was sort of starting to become something that people were interested in. Uh, but certainly another angle that we had on this, and this is sort of an ongoing theme that I think I see in my work, including generative agents and social simulacra, which is I get a lot of inspiration from when building a system, especially when building a system that incorporates uh, machine learning systems or AI systems, uh, especially our interaction with them. I get a lot of inspiration from how we understand ourselves or how we understand sort of our uh, cognitive functions uh, operate. And the literature that sort of inspired me the most when I was working on that paper was actually by Daniel Kahneman. Uh, so we sort of know, so this, many of the, many of us I'm sure would already know at least some of his works. Uh, so he's the author of the Thinking Fast and Slow, I think, or is it Slow and Fast? I always get confused between the, the, by the order. But it was basically the idea that the human mind generally has this fast thinking or system one and slow thinking system two capacity where a lot of our intuitive decisions that are sort of based on big data that we accumulate over life Let's say what kind of I'm not sure if I'm using the the right examples, but let's say even something as simple as, you know, I drink something cold and that immediate reaction or the immediate things I remember when I smell something or when I see something, that's fast thinking, right? Or our intuition is oftentimes fast thinking. Whereas our slow thinking capacity has much more to do with much more deliberate thinking, uh, logical steps and something that we reflect on over time uh, to come to an answer. So one thing that I sort of recognized in the, and this was, we're looking at really 2019, when we started to have a lot of these neural nets actually starting to work. And back then, it was just around then that some of this community around, not just explain, ex explainable AI, but especially around human and AI cooperation, a lot of really interesting work in this direction started to come from Microsoft research back then, and even now as, as well. But certainly in 2019, we started to see a huge blossom of this sort of work just around then. Uh, and what I recognized or what I found interesting was we as a community started to think more, much more deliberately about the role of people and the, the machines in this human and AI collaborative systems. And my sort of argument there was, it seemed to me that a lot of machine learning system seemed to resemble our fast thinking capacity, right? It's based on big data. Uh, it does struggle from very similar aspect as our fast thinking capacity, which is bias, right? So it's big data, so it's very quick and intuitive, but obviously it struggles if 
underlying representation or the data it was trained on has certain bias. It represents that. It doesn't really have, it doesn't really filter that too much. Um, and the argument for writing the slow, arg uh, slow algorithm paper basically was, say you have an AI system that is not perfect, that is decent, but not perfect. Then it is actually much better to instead of giving people uh, the AI's response right away, it is actually much better to introduce delay or latency in the AI's output. So let's say instead of giving the output right away, let's say when you're trying to do uh, pattern recognition or classification, instead of giving the user the algorithm's output instantaneously when the algorithm finishes running, we introduce arbitrary amount of delay, maybe just a second or a 10 seconds. And that actually what we try to argue and what we actually found is that actually helps people reason about the AI's uh, judgment in the way that we sort of force people to become the slow thinking component in this hybrid, where instead of just accepting the AI's decision, people now take some time to think about the problem on their own. And then after they see the AI system, they're now in this sort of a much more deliberate uh, reflective mode uh, that helps the overall cooperation to be much more fruitful instead of just listening to the AI system directly and believing whatever it's saying. So that sort of was my uh, sort of our argument with the slow algorithm paper. Uh, it certainly is a reflection of the time uh, that when we were writing the paper, but also um, a part of it certainly is this my fascination uh, of trying to understand our cognitive processes and trying to map in some ways how that can inform our interaction with these systems, with AI systems and how we build them. I want to dive into some of the concrete details of this paper, and then perhaps we can go from there to some takeaways just about how we tend to interact with these systems how the ways they're used perhaps take more advantage of our, our fast thinking capacities. First, to make this a little bit more concrete, you use this jelly bean counting task to consider your hypotheses in the paper. Could you first justify that task in the context of what you were trying to explore here? And then tell me a little bit about what you found. Right. So this was a sort of a toy task. Uh, so the task here basically was something like, um, there's a bottle, there's a bunch of jelly beans in the bottle. And the task here was you basically were supposed to estimate how many jelly beans are in that bottle. And the inspiration here comes from this, um, the knowledge of crowd sort of literature where if we, it turns out if you, ask one person to estimate how many jelly beans are in a bottle, it's, it's semi-difficult. If you ask an entire crowd and you average their answers, you can actually get to a much more uh, accurate answer. So that's where the task itself first came from. And like it, was, it was from that literature. But basically the idea here was it, we wanted to pick a task that was intuitive enough that our participants could easily understand and tackle uh, the moment they enter but not so easy that they can already do it perfectly because at that point, it's the role of the, another AI system or so forth helping them doesn't really make sense. So that's why we picked a task. And the idea here again was they would 
so it, we had a few different conditions, um, but the overall idea was participants were to get some input from the AI system or machine vision system in this particular instance that was sort of trained to count the number of jelly beans. And the system itself was not perfect, but people, the user, would gain, would basically take a look at their input and try to see, try to make their best estimate on how many jelly beans are in the jar. Um, so it's a, it's a collaboration between this very simple uh, vision system and the human estimation, and basically trying to find the right process in which the human user can get to the optimal number of, or the most accurate number of jelly beans in, in the jar. Uh, these sort of uh, studies in general, the flavor they have is, it's obviously not often in our life do we have to count jelly beans in a jar. So it's, it's uh, to some extent, uh, it's not a realistic task. So when we design a task um, for these kind of experiment, there are a few flavors to it. Uh, and sometimes we sacrifice one for another. So ecological validity is, validity is something that we often consider. Ecological validity basically means if it's ecologically valid, it's something that we often do in real life. So this task is a toy example. So it's not ecologically valid in that sense, unless you actually have to count jelly beans in a jar for some reason. But what we liked about this task was it actually provided a very easy to understand intuitive setup where we can clearly identify the role of AI and human uh, because the setup setup was so simple and the participant could easily understand what they were trying to do. And we could easily uh, create, envision creating such an AI system. It's just a simple vision system, right? So that was sort of the setup and why we found that particular setup to be interesting in this instance. That makes a lot of sense to me. Let's maybe draw a through line here then. So as you mentioned, you were sort of able to confirm this set of hypotheses that users pretty broadly were essentially able to, I think the first one was if the algorithm's advice was accurate, then participants would adhere to that advice more. They'd have higher confidence in the accuracy if the response time was slower. And your second hypothesis was pretty much the parallel of that for inaccurate advice from the algorithm. And perhaps drawing this forward, there are many instances, I think, where people are concerned about these questions of algorithmic decision-making. And that carries over a lot in perhaps public justice, where people might use algorithms for making decisions about whether people are going to go to jail or not, or, or very similar things and how they manifest in the criminal justice system. And I think in many other cases besides, I, I do feel the takeaways here, they feel somewhat clear. Maybe the, the TLDR of this all is just slow down, give people more time to think on their own. But I'm curious if there's anything you took away from this study, perhaps for really important cases like that, that somebody maybe initially skimming this paper might might not have thought of. Right. Well, sort of the biggest takeaway. So one, one narrow takeaway uh, that I think uh, 
was important to us, certainly was that this idea of pace in our interaction matters a lot. And that was, I guess this is another sort of a kind of like, um, I guess when I'm doing research, it's sort of research aesthetics. Um, this is another recurring theme in my work, which is I often like to get inspired by an old insight that we sort of had in the past that we forgot about, or we haven't really thought about applying to different places that's more current. So this idea of pace and interaction was something that we uh, studied and optimized for a lot in the earliest day of computing, com uh, computation. So even when, so to give you a context, the places where we often studied this is, let's say when we're typing something on a screen, right? The delay, um, let's say in what you type, let's say you've just pressed the letter A and the number of milliseconds it took for that A to show up on the screen had to be really small. And those were some of the early findings that certain tasks, the feedback needs to be immediate. Otherwise, people's productivity drops significantly. Whereas for some other task that requires much more reasoning, slower actually was better. So during the early days of building GUI interface and so forth, a lot of the studies uh, were conducted very rigorously. So we knew where to optimize for pace and where not to. So people who used to do these studies uh, that I was really inspired by are people like Ben Schneiderman, who's now a really well-known HCI uh, scholar in the field, and these were sort of done in the 80s and 90s. And when we sort of came into the scene for interacting with AI systems, uh, some of these insights that we considered when we were building earlier iterations of our computing systems were sort of forgotten or not really looked at. And certainly one of the things that we wanted to do was revive some of those insights and make them relevant again in this new context. But I think... The broader takeaway for that particular paper is, of course, you know, making things slow is not always going to be the right choice, right? It's certainly an inefficient way of going about things, especially when you need to make quick decisions. But I think the broader point, and this is a point I think that is not uh, that is being made not just by me, but now an entire community of people who is working in this topic, is that you really need to be deliberate about designing for interaction. It's, um, there was, I think before kind of like 2000, there's always people, uh, kind of sort of talking about this. And so it's not like until like, this is the, like 2019 or 18, this is the first time people start talking about it. That is not the case. But I think when we start to first think about how to interact with AI systems, a lot of conversation was around, hey, we have a good system. You know, people can just benefit from it without really thinking about how we use them and so forth. Um, but I think gradually more and more people are now appreciating that, you know, it's, it's one thing for the AI system to have really high accuracy, but if they're not deployed and managed the, the right way during the interaction, then ultimately the output they produce with humans is going to be suboptimal. And that is something that we need to be really careful about when designing these systems, because ultimately AI systems are there to augment the users. And sort of the, the last mile go, going from having built a system, how are we going to get it to the hands of the user? That is often critical in making this, the overall 
collaboration successful. So I think that's the sort of the one of the broader message that I think we want to send, uh, certainly with slow algorithm a paper, but more broadly by the literature that's been really uh, going on in this in this area. The question of slowness feels like such a difficult one, especially in cases like social media, where I think in an ideal world, we might like the interactions we have with recommendation algorithms with other users to be slower, more considered in many cases, but the incentives go in a wildly different direction. Everything needs to be bigger. It needs to be better. It needs to be faster. Faster always means better. And I think that we, it feels difficult as somebody who I think finds these questions of deliberation important to imagine that becoming a reality. And I'm kind of curious just from the practical perspective, as you've mentioned, there are a lot of people who, like you, are interested in redesigning the interfaces we use to interact. Joe Edelman, who I spoke to previously, is also pretty interested in how can we redesign social media? How can we redesign competing systems to be better for for people? But as he said himself, too, these designs don't win yet in the market sense of the word. And so I'm I'm curious, I know a lot of your work has been pretty much um, academic so far, but I guess I'd love to hear how you think about this from that practical perspective of how do we move ourselves towards a world where we get to see more of these types of systems that allow for more deliberate engagement. Right. And certainly there's a lot of people um, in this area who is much more knowledgeable about this than I am, uh, who's really delving deeper into this. So I won't say too much, I won't go into uh, too much detail on my end. Uh, but my general sense is, to some extent, it sort of has to do with incentives, right? So faster interaction certainly means more user engagement. Uh, it's much more consistent user engagement. That actually has been one of the findings in the past, where if the interaction is quick and fast, it's actually much easier for people to stay engaged and interested. Um, one of the main role, in fact, the re reason why slow algorithm actually worked as a concept was because it puts people out of the flow and makes them be much more deliberate about what they're doing. But that's not what you want to do when necessarily when you're trying to engage users. And I think a lot of the way these incentives are structured today is higher engagement certainly is better for companies. But I think there's, and that certainly was the case, uh, I want to say, you know, certainly before a lot of this backlash uh, on social media uh, in the recent years, I think that certainly was the case, right? There was the idea that, you know, more engagement means more profit and it means people get more information and so forth. But I think we as a society are starting to recognize that that may not necessarily be the best course of action for the society. And oftentimes, if we make that point clear enough as a society, a lot of market interest tends to follow, right? So I think we as a community, I, I think it's a lot of us are recognizing that social media platforms as a whole 
is in a very different place than where used where they used to be. Let's say before two thousand sixteen, right? And I think that's a part of part of it is certainly us making very clear that whatever was happening was not necessarily aligned with what we thought we wanted. And if people if enough people make that clear, and if there's enough basically ideas and research around what might be some of the alternatives, I think the incentive could be aligned again in the future, where we perhaps stay away a little bit more from engagement. I think certainly a lot of this social media platforms, I think some of them are very actively engaged in this literature and trying to do a better job. Um, so I think going forward, I think we might see some changes. But of course, this is a this does go away, uh, stray away from a little bit from my expertise. And I think there's a, m people who are way more knowledgeable in this than I am. Uh, and I am excited to see what they find in the next coming uh, few years. Sure. I, I think you still have a lot of important perspectives from what you've been doing to bear on this. And you're absolutely right that there's been much more attention on this aspect of the social media systems we engage in are not as good for us as we thought. The social dilemma did a lot of this work over the pandemic. I, I think a lot about the criticisms in that particular work, just because I find that while it brought a lot of attention to the issues, I, I sometimes find the rhetoric that Tristan Harris and some others use a little bit sensationalist. And the reason for that, I suppose, being the way they kind of paint these social media systems as Google or YouTube has literally, you know, billions of dollars of computing systems that are all pointed at like you, this user, and you're kind of locked into this puppeteer game of whatever they want to do with you. And that's kind of what your interaction with social media looks like. And I think some of these questions of how the interaction gets designed, the speed that certainly has impacts on the way it engages different ways that we think, as you've pointed out. But the, the whole puppeteering rhetoric feels a little bit overblown to me. And I sometimes worry that the overuse of that kind of rhetoric can perhaps miscast the way in which we really interact with these systems and perhaps maybe convince people that they don't have as much agency as they do when interacting with systems. And I, I guess I'm also just curious how you respond to some of that type of rhetoric. Right. So I'm, so this is something that, uh, that we of course had to think a lot about, uh, as we were also releasing some of our recent work, like generative agents and social simulacra. So my role here, and certainly in this broader conversation is as uh, that of a researcher and a, and a member of the academic community. So I err on the side of being more grounded than I think uh, many other people who might be outside the academic community. I think the role that I see, my, the, the role that I think that I need to, that I want to play in this is to stay as dry as possible, uh, be excited when there is truly exciting development. We do the research that we do because it excites us, right? And we think the future it might present is something that might excite others and benefit, um, that, that might bring benefit 
to the community that we try we're trying to serve. So I think we want to be we are excited by the research that we do, but we always want to be highly grounded. Um, and I think that general perspective uh, remains true for me in in these other discourses beyond just generative agents or so so forth, but also in the social media space and whatnot. So I one of the Jeff Hancock, uh, who I mentioned earlier, uh, my mentor. So he's a professor, again, at Stanford. Uh, he's in communication department. He's been having actually a really interesting line of work where he tried to reimagine our interpretation of our relationship between the users and the social media platforms. And I think his observation so forth has been that our relationship basically with social media platform as we understand it today was something similar to addiction, right? So we were addicted to this feeling of getting engagement on the social media. So we are always looking at it and so forth. And I think what Jeff was trying to do, and basically Jeff's argument was, let's try to steer away from that a little bit, because if we try to frame this as a form of addiction, then we're basically, it, it is a framework that sort of takes the agency away from the users. That, you know, it's addiction is something that users don't usually have control over, right? It's you're addicted, so you likely need external intervention to pull you out of that addiction. Um, and I think some of the work that Jeff has been doing that I found interesting was what are some of the alternative framework that can still in its in the framework at least can have the agency in the hands of the users while trying to promote better use of these social media platforms and i think there is really interesting work certainly going on that tries to better understand this today uh, certainly with jeff and that community and i think it's uh yeah i think it's an interesting one that i'm paying close attention to um certainly when i'm trying to delve into that uh the topic that seems very important and right that we definitely frame a lot of that interaction around this language of addiction. And I, I do find in a lot of cases, as you said, with the idea that this takes agency away, you do feel sometimes among people who call themselves very online that there is this sense of fatalism that I'm never going to be any different. This is going to be how I am for the rest of my life. And it is very important that the conception we have, the language you use around something that's going to have, I think, a very real impact on what we think we can do about it and perhaps the, the imagination we can engage in when it comes to strategies for what those interactions could look like, I think. Yeah, I agree. Before we move on to some of the more recent stuff about foundation models and interaction and social simulacra, I'd love to discuss one other paper you had examining social media on measuring the prevalence of antisocial behavior in online communities. Could you perhaps just give a bit of context on what you were exploring here why you decided to dive into this question. Right. So this paper, so this is sort of what we did in that paper. Um, 
we wanted to understand. So we knew that antisocial behavior was a big part of our experience on these social media platforms. And when I say antisocial behavior, um, in the paper, we actually define it as uh, we take it from prior literature um, and define it as eight different forms of behavior. And they might include things like personal attacks, um, certainly racism, sexism, um, as well as trolling and sexually explicit content and so forth that many of us would agree uh, should not belong in a community that is meant to be seen by many. Right? There are some communities where at least some part of uh, that content is sort of accepted as a community norm. For instance, if it's a community that's tagged as not safe for work, then those communities might be a little bit more lenient towards uh, sexually explicit content, for sure. So there are different community norms. But in general, in a public, in a regular community that you can visit uh, that doesn't have any of those tags, and we identified these eight categories that many would agree should, should not be there. And we knew this was a big part of our social life, that we see this content online, and there's been a lot of interest and effort trying to moderate this content, right? Uh, Facebook certainly has been doing a lot of this, right? They employ a lot of people to moderate really toxic content. Um, Reddit is a really good example where the community moderators try to moderate these really bad and toxic content. And they get some training and they have their own rules for how to do this and so forth. But Overall, a lot of interest, a lot of effort were put into trying put into moderating such content. Now, what we haven't really seen is so this interest around moderation really became a huge thing, uh, especially after 2016. And 2016 comes back. Uh, I guess that num that year has appeared a few times in our in our conversation today. Of course, that's the election um, and that's when a lot of sort of interest around the role of social media and hate speech and misinformation start to really gain widespread attention, right? And a lot of this effort around moderation also start to become a big thing around just around that time. So there has been a lot of work that we're put into trying to do a better job, uh, maintaining this community to be pro-social and, and try to manage this really bad content. Now, we haven't really seen how well we've been doing though. So we had new AI systems that try to moderate. We tried to train moderators different ways, but we never really knew how much of it were actually getting moderated and how much of it, how much of them were actually getting posted. So what we wanted to do was take a very empirical uh, path to understanding both the rate of this really bad content getting posted and the rate of moderation. So how many of them are actually getting posted and how many of them are being caught by the moderators and getting taken down and so forth. And this study basically took Reddit uh, as an example. Uh, and the nice thing about Reddit is we can actually, because it's community moderated, uh, we found some ways to basically gain this data set that would tell us what is getting posted and what is getting moderated. 
and we try to find a statistical estimate for those rates. And the general finding here was, at least from our perspective, and it, this, this actually was an interesting part. The number itself, I believe, was 5 to 10% of all content that were getting posted are what we would consider to be antisocial. So basically, if you scroll down uh, a page uh, on a Reddit, uh, subreddit, you would certainly see one or two con uh, comments or a post that doesn't follow the community rule, uh, that is somehow antisocial and toxic. And almost none of them were getting moderated. There were so many of them that human moderators were already at a breaking point that they were struggling to keep up with the, the number of these such content. And that was sort of our finding. And the interesting con conversation sort of flew as to you know, if we're thinking of 5 to 10%, is that a lot or is that less than you would expect? I think that's something that after we published, a lot of people debated. Uh, we as researchers were actually surprised because that actually was more than we had expected because we were putting in so much effort into this. But it turns out it still continues to be a difficult task for us to manage. And the fact that almost none of them were successfully getting moderated. Now, one thing that I, I would stress is the moderator community is phenomenal, uh, you know, especially on Reddit. And these are volunteer workers, right, who are trying to help out their community, and they're tasked with a huge amount of workload, right, trying to understand what's going on in in all of the threads and you know taking down what they need to. So they're doing a fantastic job, but it does it did appear to us that the sure number of posts uh, that needed to be reviewed is a little bit too much. Um, that these, the system that we had today was sort of breaking in places where they, where we wouldn't want them to be. So that was sort of our finding. And I think still today, it sort of continues to be an ongoing conversation within our team as to what that number exactly means. So we have this 5 to 10% number Things are getting slightly better. I believe it was more close. It was closer to 10%. I think in 2016, that number in many of the communities were getting brought down to something like 4 to 5%, which is certainly better. Um, but it still was, uh, was an issue. And one of our main sort of takeaway there was this is a problem that might need a systematic uh, change in the way we envision social media and the way we use and design them. Um, along with the fact that there are some other interesting observations and studies that are coming out around disagreement. So this is um, a highlight work by Mitchell Gordon, uh, who's my lab mate. Uh, so he published work on disagreement deconvolution. I believe that was I want to get the year right, but it was just around 2020, might have been 19, uh, where he basically found that when there's enough disagreement in a community, um, then even if a machine learning system says, oh, this should, even if you have a machine learning classifier that says, oh, AOC of you know, near perfect uh, classification uh, cap capability, if you actually brought it down to a community with a lot of disagreement, then the upper bound for the performance is actually much lower than what they're advertised to be. Because 
people will disagree. You know, comment X sounds completely fine to a person who's leaning more towards right, but might be not might not be okay for someone who's leaning towards left, and so forth. And that really brings down from the perception of the community that is being affected by these classification tasks. That really brings down the uh, the overall performance of these classifiers. So if you factor those in, then we really are in a situation that's a little bit hard to navigate with just machine learning systems, with just human moderators. And we really haven't found the right way to navigate this. It's sort of the message that we felt uh, was the right one to tell. And I think that's, uh, I think, where we kind of landed on that. That makes sense to me. It's... At the very least, good that the numbers have moved in a slightly lower direction. One aspect of these types of studies I find valuable to consider is just the interaction between the numbers, the statistics we have, and then the anecdotal experience of a user. And coming from your perspective, I guess I'm curious in this specific case, how you think about bringing those two together to get a better understanding of perhaps there's a situation in which technically maybe the number, the proportion of antisocial comments, gestures in the community increased. But when you go sample a bunch of users, they're like, wait, actually, you know, I'm enjoying being in this community a lot more. Right. Yeah. So there were some follow. Um, so this is something that we are still interested in, like this question. So there are sort of two directions that we're considering here. One is, I'll actually yeah, take this in two steps. One is there are some limitations to the way we measure this number, which was we measure the, the action number of posts. But what we didn't really consider is the view count. So let's say there might be really toxic content that's at the leaf nodes of all this conversation thread that almost no one looks at. Maybe that's why they're not getting moderated either, because almost no one's going to look at it. But if you actually look into people's experience in these communities, their experience is going to be more uh, dependent on what is at the top, right? right? What gets the most number of likes? If the top comment has really toxic content, then most people will see that. So that is something that... That, is, that has been uh, an aspect of this, these sort of studies that's been hard to capture until today because we just didn't have the right tool. Uh, Facebook or these large companies might have an internal measure to understand that question. But as a third party, as researchers in academia, it really wasn't something that we could test. Uh, and it is something that continues to excite us in terms of these kind of social computing evaluation and I believe it's something that Michael uh, Bernstein, um, my advisor, is definitely looking into right now. So there's still some interest around, uh, a lot of interest, I would say, around this idea. Uh, and yeah, the lived experience might be different in these communities. Another aspect is um, in human computation and in, a, so a part of HCI is what we call CSCW. And, um, and this community, community looks much more towards social computing systems and crowd working and so forth. It's computer-mediated systems that this community cares a lot about. And there has been this idea that's been getting more and more attention. So it's called participatory design or user-centered design. And these are ideas that has existed for many years. 
but especially for the participatory design or some or related one here might be value sensitive design has been sort of on the it's been gaining more and more interest again um, I, especially in these in the space of certainly social media but also AI design and so forth and the entire idea here is a lot of these design decisions really need to be made with the stakeholders of the systems uh, in the loop. So you actually hold workshops with these people, uh, so with the users, with the moderators, um, and you actually ask. Um, you try to basically get some of the design questions, right? That tries to better understand what their experience is like using these systems and what they would want the system to do or how we would want to change the systems in the future. So that's uh, certainly an active area of research that I think a lot of really cool work is happening right now. And um, and I think that's that will continue to be the case in the years to come. Let's shift a little bit towards some of your more LLM, GPT-focused work. And to bridge to that, you and a few other researchers authored this section, Interaction, in on the opportunities and risks of foundation models. Of course, this kind of time being an inflection point for a lot of fields that would be touched by AI. And so could you perhaps recount a little bit in a little bit more detail than we've already discussed the shift that was occurring then for you and the other researchers, how you conceptualized what GPT-3 and later large language models could bring to your field both some of those positives and negatives? Right. So here's sort of what we recognized um, as more broadly speaking first, and then I'll narrow into the interaction component. So it was 2020, um, so it, it was my first year in PhD, uh, I remember this. And it was, we started talking about this around winter. Uh, so at Stanford, we sort of do this rotation uh, during your first year of PhD with different advisors. And my plan was to uh, rotate. So I rotated with Michael, Jeff, uh, so Jeff Hancock. So Michael Bernstein is um, my co-advisor. Jeff Hancock is uh, another fantastic mentor that I mentioned a few times today. And Percy Liang, so another my co-advisor who I was planning to rotate in the spring. Um, and this conversation around foundation models started to really shape up around the winter quarter. And we already knew that I was rotating with Percy uh, that spring. And there was just around then there was this active conversation around writing this paper and what would what this would mean for the field of certainly machine learning, but also interaction. And I think overall, the observation that I think people are making and certainly uh, people like Percy who spoke in, in this podcast before, I think, um, recognized was the way we were training these models has changed. If large language models such as GPT-2, GPT-3, back then was, uh, again, it was just around when GPT-3 became a really big thing. If such models were to become the main driver for innovation in machine learning research in the upcoming years, we'll be in the situation where we're not training models for a particular task but rather we're training a model on broad data for a modality, let's say natural language, vision, and so forth. 
And a lot of the things that these models will be able to do are not something that we designed for, but it's something that's much more emergent, right? Oh, it can do classification. That's fantastic. But we didn't know, or there's no guarantee that it would be able to do classification. Or, oh, it can write poem decently well, but we didn't know that it would be able to do that. These were all emergent behavior that seems to that we just seem to find out over time. And there was a very different mode of sort of thinking about machine learning research and how we use these kind of systems. So that's why this idea, the entire idea of foundation model, uh, I think really came to, to be. I think people wanted to have a better way to define this concept or define this mode of interacting with and thinking about machine learning systems. And foundation model and that entire paper tried to give a definition to that, that, that phenomenon that was happening. Now, my particular role in that paper was more geared towards interaction, thinking about if foundation model became a main driver again for a lot of machine learning research in the future, what would that mean for the way we interact with and use these systems? And when I say interaction, it really means both what new things can we do with them and how would users actually literally interact with them? And my section tried to envision that future. Like, what would that mean? And as I recall, that when, and of course, our thoughts, a lot of our thoughts are in this area have progressed since then. So I think what you're seeing in that particular chapter, so in the interaction chapter of the foundation model paper, is a snippet of what we were excited about at that time. And one thing that we recognized was that a different axis was getting influenced by the rise of foundation models. So this is sort of what we saw in the past when we had machine learning system come about, a new system, new architecture. Now what we saw was basically the axis of performance started to get influenced. Let's say we have a new, let's say for instance, when we got image, the ImageNet, right? And we were able to train really powerful neural nets on it and that can do a lot of different things. Let's say image classification and so forth. The bar for performance went up, right? We could literally achieve much higher performance on many of the metrics and tasks. And we were very much used to thinking about and obviously, in some contexts, it is still challenging, but we are certainly much more used to thinking about what would it mean if the performance improved? What things can we do? Um, what would that mean for the way we build these systems and so forth? We thought about this before. What we recognized with foundation model was another axis was getting influenced, and that axis was this idea of how difficult is it to build a system and build a machine learning system. And what we found is the foundation model, because we can just literally prompt it to do stuff and it will largely follow our instructions, that bar or that axis sort to basically say, oh, things are going to get just so much faster and easier to build. Not better necessarily. A large language model might not be the best text classifier. We might be able to build much more powerful classifier or very task-specific models. But these models are now allowing us to prototype machine learning systems at a pace that we never could have envisioned in the past. 
And that actually, to us, felt very fresh. And we really went in and started to think about, okay, what would that mean? What would they un- enable us to do? So that was sort of a, sort of the main point of that section. Okay, the our ability to build machine learning system is going to be so much easier. Now we're, it's, it's going to get more powerful in the sense that building a system is now going to be so much easier. Uh, that means more people will be able to build machine learning systems or machine learning infused systems. And that will certainly point to different future than simply having these models be more powerful. So we delve into what would it, what this would mean for prototyping machine learning systems, um, also allowing people to interact with these machine learning systems by literally letting them build a system on, on their own, not just expert machine learning developers, but just regular users uh, who don't necessarily even have computer programming uh, knowledge. So that was sort of the point of that particular section that we were excited about at that time. And I think some of that still remains true today uh, in our work uh, that's much more recent. The ability for people with different sorts of expertise and not necessarily a technical background to be able to roll up their sleeves, as it were, and create systems and iterate on them in an easier way seems very fundamentally important to this enterprise, I think, because that just really, I guess, there there is something different, I suppose, about what you can take away from a system being able to tinker with and mess with it on your own. And so it, it does seem like kind of expanding that, that possible space um, does open up a lot of exciting opportunities here. And to speak to the prototyping, one way in which this is manifested for you is in your social simulacra paper, which I think is one of the first of yours that I read personally and was really, really excited to see. So let's maybe lay down some of the context here. You wanted to sort of mimic realistic social interactions and new large language models were sort of affording that a little bit more easily. Could you maybe give some of the context for how you got started on this work? Right. So there's actually a, I mean, at this point, it's it's not so much a secret, but it's it's more of a background story here. So today, really the way, so my core uh, sort of portfolio or my key pieces that I've been working on during my PhD is around this idea of generative agents. And it's really a social simulacra really was sort of the first paper that tried to get at generative agents. And then we published this uh, new paper uh, just earlier this month uh, on interactive simulacra. And that's the one that sort of got a lot of attention. Um, And the sort of the background story here actually is the order was actually swapped. So we actually wanted to build uh, what we presented in generative agents first. And that was actually our original idea, building that game world and actually having agents interact within that game world was actually the original idea that we had. Um, And then 
And then we sort of saw social simulacra as a potential application space. And now I'll delve into both of them, but there was this interesting moment. And I, I guess having said that, I sort of give more context around this. So as we were sort of working in that foundation model piece, and we really started to think deeply about, okay, we have foundation models, we have large language models. What would it mean for our ability to build uh, interactive systems for the future? And I mentioned this earlier during our conversation today, but I'm personally really excited when there's comes an opportunity where we feel like this new piece of technology is allowing us to achieve something that seems fundamentally different, right? So the fact that these, again, these models could do classification and so forth, exciting, right? That's cool. But we wanted to ask, how far can we push it? And sort of the initial observation that we made about these models, certainly large language model back then, uh, even with GPT-3, was that they were trained on broad data that include data that actually re represent or reflect the way we live, the way we behave, and the way we talk, right? It had data from social media. It had data from Wikipedia and a lot of the social web and so forth. So it actually had the knowledge. So if we poke it at the right angle, you can actually retrieve this very much believable human behavior as we sort of phrased it in the, in the recent paper. And we wanted to ask, that's a very unique feature of these models that we just didn't have in the past. It, this, is, this felt a little bit different than, let's say, something like classification, right? That we knew how to do. But recreating even just small snippets of human behavior felt fresh to us. It's not something that we... So the, a lot of really creative work in the gaming community, like game development community, has actually involved uh, recreating human behavior in this manner. But the way we, the main levers that we had basically was manual authoring, right? So if you play a game, all the scripts uh, that these game characters would say or author by human authors would actually type out what they would say and they would have behavior tree, right? So that, um, so that it, the character seems to have some agency over their actions and so forth but ultimately they were manually labor, uh, manually authored content. And the fact that we could just re retrieve some of this human behavior without the manual authoring felt interesting. And, and when that idea came about, we first thought, well, can we simulate you know, human behavior in a game world? Um, that was sort of the most extreme idea that we had. Hey, if where if we could, create this uh, sandbox environment and simulate uh, people interacting with it, that would be interesting. But it sort of took us, and, I'm, and this is something that I've been reflecting on recently as well, as to why we didn't go into that right away. Um, and because it's it's been interesting because we published generative agents and we were excited by it. But we also thought it might be a paper that we sort of need to convince people that it is indeed exciting, that we didn't quite foresee this immediate reaction from the community, that this is in indeed interesting. We thought it might be something that we sort of need to advertise and say, hey, 
there's something really interesting going on. Take a look. Um, so the interest clearly was there. And now I'm, I've been sort of reflecting on why we didn't really see it that way at first. And one certainly is um, when we build interactive technology in HCI, certainly, we like to think a lot about what exactly, what is the user need that we're trying to solve, right? And when we were trying, to, when we first came up with this idea of game simulation or simulating, you know, human behavior in a sandbox environment, we were stuck on that question. We were sort of wondering, okay, let's say you can simulate people in a game world, but what good would that do? Like, what user need is there that we're trying to actively tackle and solve? Certainly, it will make for much more interesting games, but. And I and I'm now finding out. I we always thought that was sort of cool because, you know, we we'll, we developed this because we kind of enjoy the entire game environment setup, but we weren't sure how it would resonate with the rest of the academic community to some extent. So we wanted to convince ourselves that such simulation will have a very concrete benefit. Uh, for the users, whoever the user may be. So I think for, for my personal take, I think that's why we decided actually to tackle the, in, the more of the application space first. And that was social simulacra. So social simulacra is basically this idea of, so let's say when you're creating a new social computing system, one of the fundamental challenges of designing a social computing system like a social media and something as simple as something like a subreddit has been that it's difficult to understand what might happen in a community when there's not when there's 10. That, that we know how to do because we can just recruit 10 people and try it out. But when there's thousands or even tens of thousands or even millions of people, that is really hard to predict because there's a lot of emergent properties of these communities so a troll might come in in ways that you never really expected and that might break the community. And as a designer, it is what might happen at that emergent scale that you really want to understand, not when there's only five people. But in social computing design, understanding that emergent behavior at scale has been something that we just had we really struggled with. So that was from the social computing perspective, that was one of the fundamental challenges that we had that was first recognized by Jonathan Gruden, who is a phenomenal researcher uh, at MSR. And he noted on that decades ago, and we still didn't really have the right way to tackle it. So we thought, can we tackle that? I mean, if we could simulate user behavior, these models certainly know people's behavior online because it's seen it. and we made this early observation that, yeah, we can retrieve it. Then we asked, what if we can simulate uh, these user behavior, populate social platforms or new social computing designs, realistic human behavior, and would that help us tackle this problem that has exist existed in social computing literature for many decades? If the answer comes out to be yes, then that sort of gives us confidence that this entire idea of generating human behavior certainly has merit. It is interesting. And so that's what we try to find out with social simulacra. So social simulacra was about creating 
populated prototypes for social computing systems. The context here was something like a subreddit. You're trying to create a new subreddit. A designer of such a subreddit is the user. And they need to decide on a lot of things, even though we might, as users of subreddits, we might not notice them every day, but they have to decide on the community goal. So what is this community about? Is this community about people discussing art? Or is it about people discussing games or politics and so forth? And they also have to decide on the moderation strategies. What are you not going to allow people to post? Are you going to allow people to post advertisements? Are you going to let people talk about politics? And how are you going to moderate? What are you going to take down? All these are design decisions that the moderators of these systems need to make. And based on how they make that decision, the communities can really break or succeed. Right? And succeed basically here means a community having a lot of pro-social behavior, serving its pur purpose, and people actually benefiting such communities. And obviously failure might mean something like people getting actively harmed or personally attacked on these communities in ways that we really don't want uh, to see. So we basically created the system where given a community description, given this design input from a designer, we would create a populated community with synthetic users. So GPT-3 generated users and their content, so their behavior. So let's say their posts and comments and so forth. And that would just populate this new uh, social computing design, new subreddit design. And the designer will be able to scroll through them uh, and do some basic statistics to understand what kind of emergent behavior might come up in such a community and actually change their design too. So let's say they start to notice certain types of uh, certain types of trolling, and they start to feel like, huh, I really don't want to see that. How might I change the design of my community so I don't see them as much? And we would actually get that um, edit from the designer and recreate or re-simulate re this community so that the, the designer can see whether their change, their design change, actually push the community in the way they want it. And what we find is we've done two sets of evaluation. One was to basically see whether such communities are realistic. And we actually had a really, uh, we had an opportunity to do what I would consider to be a very interesting and for what it's worth, robust uh, evaluation, which is a little bit rare, especially when you're trying to consider what is realistic uh, and not in these kind of simulation. Um, so what we've done was, so we used GPT-3, uh, Instructune version, um, and it had its training data cut off at certain date. I, I forget the exact day, but it was something like 2019 or 2020, just around that date. So the paper itself was published in 2022, I want to say. Yes. I think that's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's... The dates kind of like, you know, nowadays it's... I'm, I mean, they blend together. Yeah. But um, what we've done is we collected a list of subreddits, 50 subreddits that were created after the release of GPT-3. So GPT-3 hasn't seen these subreddits. It does not know they exist. And it does not know what topics they're talking about. 
And we had GPT-3 recreate these subreddits or the community within the subreddits, just given the design for, for them. And what was fascinating was that it even included things like uh, community for people discussing vaccination for uh, COVID. And GPT-3 didn't know anything about COVID. And we asked it to just recreate it, recreate the community. And then what we've done was we brought in uh, human participants, human evaluators, who were asked to look at both the generated community, the simulated community, and the real community that's actually online and trying to see which one's real. What we basically found was that people basically couldn't really distinguish between what is generated by our social simulacra and what is real, right? So that's actually an interesting finding, right? So consider this case of even COVID vaccination. GPT-3 doesn't know anything about COVID, but for some reason, it is now able to generate content that actually is about COVID vaccination community. And it looks just as real as the real one. And now there are reasons why this makes sense. So basically what we're finding is in that particular instance, GPT-3 can actually infer what COVID is by looking at COVID vaccination. And it actually has a lot of this information about vaccination, right? And it knows that, oh, you know, if there's vaccination, some people might be anti-vax, some people might be pro-vax, some people might have concerns about certain forms of vaccination and so forth. So it has all that understanding and it even knows some companies associated with vaccination. So even though it actually doesn't know certain parts about, you know, the community design, design that's much more recent like COVID, it is able to infer that COVID is the illness that we're trying to get vaccinated for. And just based on that, it's able to recreate this realistic community, even for those that it doesn't, it really shouldn't know about. And that was robust enough that it looked realistic, even to people who are familiar with this real community. And that was an interesting sort of a kind of like aha moment for what for us that. Not only can these models create believable human behavior, it is able to create believable human behavior in this context, even when they don't know all the details about the, com about the community. And based on that, what we've then done is we actually brought these uh, Brasocial Simulacra to actual designers who are either trained or actually has professional experience designing and moderating social computing systems, even on Reddit or Discord and so forth. And we actually asked them to build a new community of their own using social simulacra to basically see this. And this is actually quite a common form of uh, HCI evaluation, where if you have a system, you sort of want to bring it to the end users and see whether it actually helps the users. And what we find is that a lot of social computing designs today happen in a reactive manner. What that basically means is the way we iterate on social computing designs is basically something really bad happens in a community and the designer sees them and they go, ah, we really shouldn't allow that. We missed that. And then they go and fix it. This is actually interesting, right? Because these are 
people who are trained to moderate these communities. But even they get surprised by the things that happen in them. And it's not necessarily because they haven't seen such behaviors, right? The fact that trolling happens in certain community, we all know. I mean, even, even I know, and I'm not trained to do this, right? But it's understanding what kind of trolling can exactly happen and in what context and what situation. That's really hard to catch. So actually seeing it before them and taking place, they can actually, the designers can then understand, ah, these are the concrete cases that might be really common that we need to catch. Um, so this current state uh, was because of the difficulty. A lot of this social computing design and edits were happening in a reactive manner. What we found was basically with social simulacra, we can change that equation to make social computing design to be much more proactive. So before launching your design to the public, you simulate it, you see what might go wrong, and you set some of these guard, uh, guardrails to prevent certain cases before you launch it. And those kind of proactive design has been something that's really hard to implement in real life. Um, and we, when we sort of finished that evaluation and published social simulacra, that was something that really excited us because we felt, felt like for the first time in, in quite some number of years, we could change this equation and not necessarily have to expose the end users in this case, not just designers, but uh, the, the actual users of these social platforms with potentially flawed designs. Now, just because you simulate it once or a few times doesn't mean we captured all the edge cases. Of course not. So one of the very clear message that we always try to send with these simulation is whatever we simulate is not necessarily the future, right? Simulation always is, it's an, to some extent, it's, it's a, it's a well-educated guess, right? And that human behavior is extremely complex. So perfect simulation and perfect prediction is never really possible, but at least we're trying to give, we are, we can now give levers to the end design, to the designers to iterate on their design a little bit more in an informed manner before they actually launch their design to people. And that excited us. And we felt like that was something that I think these sort these forms of simulation can actually provide to the end user. So that was social simulacra. That was the work that we've done. So that was my sort of a second year in PhD. Uh, so we've done that work. And I think by the time we finished on that, I think we started to gain confidence that this idea of generative agents, and we didn't quite use the term generative agents in that paper, and we iterated on the title of the, that piece of uh, technique uh, quite a bit, but back then we called it personas. Um, and we had different reasons for it, but um, one main difference was Social simulacra was early iteration. So if you look at what we would consider to be agents in social simulacra, they're nothing like generative agents. Uh, back then, these were stateless. Uh, so they didn't have memory or anything like that, which is one of the core elements of generative agents. But social simulacra's agents or synthetic users, and they acted in the moment, no memory, 
uh, they only and everything took place on just textual world of social media, right? So it's a much simpler setup. Um, but it basically got us to the point where we were excited about this idea that we thought if we do this right, something like generative agents, uh, we'll be able to tackle many interesting challenges that were out of reach up until today. Um, and we saw a glimpse of that with social simulacra. So one of the things that seems like a, a good takeaway from this too is, of course, in, in Reddit, sort of the environment you were exploring that's distributed into this set of kind of smaller governed communities. These communities have norms. And another thing I felt this speaks to as well is just almost a confirmation of the actual power that norms can have in these communities. I think maybe somebody who has spent a lot of time on some broad social media, you know, like Twitter, like Facebook, where the design is is very different. I think the idea of like a smaller community with norms might just feel like something where I don't know, you know, if you if you exist in a free for all as your primary social media platform, then it might feel a little bit odd. And you might wonder, does that actually work? And of course, as you've pointed out, Reddit has so many people who actually do this difficult work of moderation. And so I, I suppose some of your experiments here do seem to point to the the importance too of um, you know, moderation is like a key component of this, but I think sometimes when we discuss the idea of using norms for various things, many people will look at that as a strategy and just kind of dismiss it as, you know, this is like an, a, an all bark, no bite way of going about this, which has truth to it, but I think still misses the fact that norms do, do tend to work when you have enough people really buying in. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. You had mentioned that the ability social simulacra provides to understand what goes well and wrong in a community kind of underscores some the need for sort of further work, close collaborations with stakeholders, accountability measures, evaluation techniques to ensure that this sort of prototyping approach gets used for what you want it to be used for, um, as opposed to things like auto-trolling. Could you shed some light on what these conversations, what these collaborations look like right now? So you mean between the extra designers and the developers of something like Macra? Yes. Right. So right now, so what is actually quite nice about social simulacra was, again, I told, as I mentioned, the agents, quote unquote, in social simulacra were stateless, right? That all they really were, were prompts. So we just prompt GPT-3 with current context. This is a conversation and this is a particular persona in this community. Let's say uh, June likes art and he's posting something to an artist community, right? And here's the uh, thread up until now. What would June say in this particular instance? You just prompt GPT-3 with that and it will output social simulacra behavior of, of this persona. 
what's nice about that, it's actually extremely simple to implement, right? So we actually even had a demo site where we presented some snippets or basically some sample um, simulation or simulated behavior of users in 50 different communities. And we actually share the prompt along with it that would basically recreate everything that's in that page. What was really nice uh, was social computing designers who had no technical background today could just take the prompt, copy and paste it and use it today right away. And I think that's some of the use cases that we've been seeing where um, this has happened in academic papers or academic communities where they ask, hey, how can we implement something like social simulacra? And we will just point them to that demo page and tell them oh, everything's there. You just copy and paste um, the prompt. You might just want to change around you know, the conversation history with whatever you, you are uh, looking into right now. But otherwise, there's no work beyond that. And I think so far, that's sort of been the mode of communication and collaboration between certainly us and other members of the community within the scope of social simulacra. Now, I think going forward, I think some of the design opportunities that we saw with something like social simulacra was embedding this technique as a part of a bigger platform. Let's say we use Reddit as our testbed for something like social simulacra. But you can imagine if Reddit were to implement social simulacra as a part of their platform, it could look like, let's say you're trying to create a new subreddit and Reddit as a platform might simulate a few threads in, your, in the community that you're about to launch and basically ask before you finish launching, hey, here are some of the conversations that might populate your community in the future. Is this what you want? And if the answer is yes, that's that's what the, the, the moderator or designer wants, then go ahead and publish it. Otherwise, they let you iterate a few times. So I, so I think there are opportunities like that in the future. But I think that's where sort of um, our conversation is at right now. Let's talk a little bit about your generative agents paper. So you've kind of painted the broad stroke story of how this fits together with social simulacra. And I think given the attention this has gotten, maybe a lot of people might be familiar with the broad strokes, but just for anybody who isn't, could you perhaps introduce the evaluations you were doing in this paper, a little bit about the agent architectures and, and some of that context? For sure. So generative agents, try to implement a fully general computational agent that exhibits human-like behavior in a, basically in a game world where that was our implementation. But the idea here is it's a framework that is meant to work across different settings. So an open world like ours um, is certainly a part of the world that generative agents is trying to cover. It can certainly be used in place of the personas in social simulacra, right? So in that way, social simulacra and generative agents certainly is a, is a single thread that sort of is connected. But basically here, the idea is, here's what we've noticed with, uh, with large language model. Again, the main core observation was that large language model is able to reproduce human behavior. 
social simulacra was sort of the one of the very first paper to make that observation or make that explicit and try to implement something with that. But since then, and just around that time, a lot of it, I'd say there's been a few teams looking into this property of large language model. Um, so the commun academic community at this point had tried to have large language model generated agents to take psychology tests or basically replicate psych experiments, um, recreate political uh, surveys. And I'm trying to remember and try to even use them as a form of crowd workers uh, in, in these type of studies where the main goal again was to use these agents or large language model generated personas uh, to at least under have give us an understanding of how people might actually behave in a similar context. That sort of was the scene that we were entering when we started working on generative agents. Uh, so we started working on this project last summer. So it was, so we had just finished working on social simulacra. We were wondering what to do for two, three months. And we decided that this indeed was the idea that we were going in with. So it was around June last year, 2022. And that was sort of the observation that we were making back then, that, that we as a community was making that yes, we can create this human behavior. But there was a big limitation in the way we were going about this. And it was very clear with social simulacra, but I think other members of this community who was looking at large language model as a technique for generating human behavior, I think we all sort of recognized this, which was in a test context limitation, right? And that's a very clear one. And human behavior doesn't just happen, you know, in the moment, in the sense that um, social simulacra, the way we, I'll talk about social simulacra mainly because um, that, that was sort of a, when I want to talk about limitation, I want to talk about my own work instead of, you know, other work, because I think that's, that's only fair. Uh, social simulacra, these agents had no memory, right? It, we just basically gave it the current context. It remained coherent within one thread, and that was about it. Very simple. And if you think about why that was the case, a part of it certainly was large length model could only fit about a conversation thread length of content. And that was about it. And another limitation certainly was that all the environment that these quote unquote personas or agents were in, acting in or operating in is basically all the textual world, which makes sense again, because large length model, which was the main model that we were using was based on natural language. So it made sense that it would thrive in contexts such as social media, but there was an, op it was an open question as to how we might be able to use this technique to create agents that can go beyond that. So a few limitations here. And what we found with generative agents or what we tried to tackle with generative agents was basically create an agent that can operate in a game world. And that was sort of the demo that we came in with. We wanted to create NPCs. And like that part was the firm sort of a vision that we had. We want to create NPCs in game world. 
And we very quickly recognized that, okay, one, it clearly has to be able to operate in a game world like space that's beyond just text, for sure. But another one was it obviously needs memory. And we first really recognized, we sort of had the sense that we might need this, but we first really recognized this when, so we were able to get one agent up and running uh, and it would create believable uh, plans, daily plans and so forth. But when we started to have more than one agent and we wanted them to talk to each other, it sort of became an impossible thing because they wouldn't remember who each other's were. And that became a challenge. And, and just around then we sort of, and by the time we, and that's when we realized, okay, obviously these agents need memory. And when we recognized that they need memory, it also became clear that they sort of need this long-term memory, which ended up becoming the memory stream, but also the short-term memory that would actually fit into the context of a large Lynch model. So that was sort of the beginning of that entire architecture, that that was the limitation that we were trying to solve, and that was sort of the way we were coming in from. So over the, so ultimately the architecture we ended up making was at the center. So this is generative agent now. Uh, at the center, there is memory stream. Memory stream is basically a long-term memory for these agents. And there's the what we call the retrieve memory. And the basic the core function here is the memory stream would contain exhaustive list of everything that the agent has seen, perceived, thought about um, in natural language. So everything so that was another unique feature of this particular agent. Because we were using a large language model, everything could just be in natural language, right? So I I ate this. I did this today, I talked with this person, I thought about X, Y, Z, and so forth, all in natural language. And we would create a function, and this function was, the, the retrieval function was based on three simple concepts. One was recency, uh, another one was importance, and the last one was relevant, where it would basically bias towards retrieving, uh, retrieving pieces of memory from this memory stream, uh, that were the most recent, important, and relevant to the current moment. So let's say I'm talking to, talking about my work right now. Obviously, the most relevant thing that I need to bring in is my own research. That makes sense. But also, I clearly remember more about my recent work, uh, more so than my some of the earliest work. I think that's true in a lot of cases. And that's what recency shows. And then the importance, right? What I ate last weekend certainly does not matter in this conversation, not relevant, but also not that important either. So those those uh, that function retrieves certain parts of the memory into the retrieved memory. So that's the core uh, piece of generative agents. And from here, um, generative agents produces three different things. One is plan. So plan here might be something like, uh, oh, I'm going to wake up at a certain hour. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And plans are important because without plans, let's say if you ask someone randomly, what would you be doing tomorrow at, at 12 p.m.? Then they might say, hey, I'll be eating lunch. But you can ask the same person, what would you be doing tomorrow at 12.30 p.m.? 
And that person might say again, lunch. And you can ask the same thing at you know for one p.m. And that person might say one. Uh, that person might say lunch again, even though that person had already mentioned lunch and lunch and lunch. And and that's a behavior that can that we see when there's no planning, right? So you just make best guess. If you were just to make best guess on what might happen at an hour, then it might be coherent or it might be believable in the moment, but you sort of lose the long-term coherency. So that's why you use, we sort of wanted that planning. So generative agents produce plans. That's first loop. Another is reflection. So what generative agents observe, so our perception, and not just generative agents, but our perceptions are things that are grounded in, in our reality, the things that actually happened. I ate an omelet. If I actually ate that omelet, then that is an observational memory that actually happened. But if somebody eats omelet three times in a row, then you can start to infer something about this person. Maybe that person likes to eat omelets. Maybe that's what the person likes. And with just observational memory, getting into that level of insight is really difficult. So what these agents actually do is they have this reflection loop where they reflect on the past experience to gain higher level insight about their surroundings and about themselves. And basically the, the argument here is they would ultimately create trees of reflection where at the very bottom level, the, the leaf nodes, or observational memory. These are just facts that happen in their daily life. But the higher level the tree goes, the higher level the, the concepts are, right? So at the very bottom, the example that we use in the paper might be something like this character Klaus is reading a book on gentrification, reading a book on, uh, I don't know, some other social science topics and doing research or writing paper, observational memory. And towards the end, it basically builds up to become something like, oh, Klaus spends a lot of time researching. And that builds up to become something like, oh, Klaus is really dedicated and he enjoys doing research, right? So ultimately gets to the higher level understanding of the characteristics of this person or this agent. And all that filter in to generate the final component, which is the extra behavior that gets outputted. So that might mean, oh, Klaus is going to wake up at 8 a.m., going to go to library and study or do research and all that. So that is sort of the core function of generative agents. And in this world, they can navigate a game world. They can talk to each other. They remember each other's characteristics. And they sort of just behave. And what's interesting about this is from the perspective of human user, we need to give very little input to, to these agents. All we just tell them is just their background story, um, what they're interested in, and we just tell them their age um, and their relationship at the start of assimilation, right? A father needs to know who his son is, that kind of thing. And after that, it just goes and does its own thing. And we as the user, all we have to do is observe what they do. And that was generative agents. But again, so the challenge that we're trying to overcome was this idea of long-term coherency, memory, and being able to populate this open world like a game. And we, as a part of it, we developed this architecture.
one thing I would say, uh, just one last thing I would say about this, is this idea of context limitation, I think, will surely relax in the future. And I think there has been really interesting and cool work that's been coming out around this context limitation that relaxes that uh, limit quite, quite a bit, uh, quite more so than uh, even GPT-4, which already had a fairly big context limitation. What I think is interesting is people don't operate that way, though, right? When, when we need to make a, even the smallest decision, let's say what to eat for breakfast, we don't need to bring in all our life experience to that moment uh, to make the decision. And even if we could, the argument obviously here would be efficiency. Um, so the, one of the things that the generative agents architecture is trying to achieve is that efficiency um, under the premise that today, 25 agent simulation was quite expensive. Um, but I think the price will get cheaper. But as the price gets cheaper, our appetite for larger simulation, I think, will grow. So imagine if you can simulate a community with a million agents be behaving in a believable manner in real time. I think that's sort of uh, the end goal that such simulation might have. Um, and one of the reasons why we are particularly excited about these kind of architecture is I think it shows a future or it shows us a path to getting to that kind of future. So I think that's that's generative agents, um, and that's uh, sort of our most recent work in this space. You you read my mind with the comment on context limitation. I was just going to ask about that since over the past couple of days we definitely have seen people work towards relaxing that constraint. So yes. I do want to ask a kind of parallel question though, since you made the important observation that humans do not, in reality, operate with essentially unlimited context length. And that is more about the side of coherence. Do you think that there is such a thing as too coherent when it comes to a generative agent trying to simulate believable human behavior? Because humans can be irrational. We think in fragments. Perhaps what you ate for lunch last weekend isn't relevant to the conversation right now, but maybe you started thinking about it for some reason. All these sorts of things seem to happen. And so I'm, I'm curious how you think about that question. Right. So my honest answer, it turns out, so this is something I'm still learning about. And my honest answer is I think we as a community doesn't really know what the right answer is here. Um, so evaluating, so believable, so I use the term believable quite a bit in today's conversation. And I think uh, in certainly in the paper, we define this more crisply. But this idea of believability is not a new one. And the reason why I mentioned this is because the entire idea of evaluating believability has been actually a really important part of this discussion. So this concept of believable agents first came about in 1994 uh, when Joseph Bates, uh, he was back then a CMU professor writing about this wrote about potential about uh, creating believable agents. And back then, cognitive architecture still was a very popular concept. Um, and ultimately, it was actually that community, people like John Laird, who is now in Michigan, who made foundational uh, contribution to cognitive architectures, who ultimately brought 
this idea of believable agents to the to the fold and try to advocate, hey, you can use this. If we can achieve this, we can do a lot of interesting things with them. But obviously, this is something that we sort of have forgotten about in the past decades because we didn't really have the right way to tackle it ultimately. And then we sort of as a community, I think, decided that, okay, without a new way to approach this, it's really just not going to be able to solve it. So we'll sort of abandon it for now. And a part of that abandonment was actually this idea of we never really got to the point where we can think in a much more critical manner about what it means to be believable. Because I think a lot of the agents that we sort of had in the past were fairly limited that whether when we ask, are they believable, it was sort of clearly not really, or it was very much handwritten. So it was very limited in the context in which it could stay believable. Uh, and I think we're sort of, for the first time, I think we can sort of start to really more critically ask, we now have this more general agents, are they actually believable? And it's a metric that I think we sort of need to develop over time. Now, I've, I've had some of my own surprises uh, when trying to define this. In the paper, we wanted to discuss a lot of boundary conditions because the agents that we developed are not perfect. Uh, the generative agents, uh, the implementation, what I see it as is more of a basically proof of concept that something that can make the argument that this, the creation of believable agents in an open world, it is something that we can tackle now and we can already achieve this much. But clearly there's a lot more that we need to do to make it to, uh, to the level where it's truly believable. But so as a part of that, we were really cautious about making sure we lay out all the boundary cases and observations that marked that signal basically failures in the agents. One of them, let's say, was people flaking and not coming to the party, even though when they heard, you know, even after hearing about it, or what were some of the other examples? There are a few, there are quite some number of the, these edge cases that we mentioned, but some of the comments that I've been seeing was actually even the behavior that we thought was erotic. In some cases, people thought they were believable because we indeed are irrational. We flake and we forget about things. Um, and so do these agents. So I do think there is such a thing as being too coherent. Um, and some of that we sort of had an appreciation for because we wanted to make sure that these agents forget, right? That's why we, so the recency function the, is that one that favors um, more recent events or the record that were recently retrieved or created certainly contributes to these agents forgetting so that they're not too coherent over time. But that rule seems to me much more flexible than I had expected. Another example that I sort of felt this the most strongly actually is if you look at our demo, there is a lot of imperfection in the demo, in my opinion. Some of the conversations, some of the things that we clearly mentioned is they're overly polite because ChatGPT is polite. But even beyond that, there are some moments where I feel like, eh, this simulation, it could have gone better. Or, you know, does this behavior really make sense? And we really haven't seen that many comments about people asking, huh, 
is this really believable moment here or there? And I've been reflecting on why that is the case, because a lot of people seem to have looked at this demo and they're not really talking about its imperfection, but it's more, the reaction is more that, huh, this seems to work. And I, I think a part of it certainly is because people understand that this is the, the proof of concept. This is the first promise. But I think another part is I, people are irrational. So when something acts in an unexpected manner, it's not necessarily going to break that illusion of believability. Perhaps another component of that too is, as you said, the purpose of much of HCI research is really to push the boundaries to give people a peek into the future. And I guess this is similar to your second point there, but this does seem like something that people maybe just haven't really seen before in this way. Um, And so I could imagine that affecting things. You did say that you yourself were surprised by some of the emergent behaviors. So I think the very wholesome case that a lot of people point to is this one agent, Isabella, throwing a Valentine's Day party and people actually showed up. And one agent, Maria, asked another out, which was which was adorable. And you did mention that perhaps some of the ways in which these agents interacted is attributable to instruction tuning and the fact that ChatGPT is really trying to um, make people have comfortable interactions. And so you end up with these overly polite cooperative agents. But I'm curious if you read anything else from the behaviors you observed in the agents, either about the agent architecture you developed or about the underlying models. Right. So the main thing, I I do think the main thing that we sort of observed was this idea of, you know, these agents being too collaborative and too polite. Uh, so, I, But I think what I might add is there's a deeper angle here uh, beyond just the fact that these agents are just collaborative. And I think the deeper angle here actually is what we are trying to, uh, to achieve uh, with generative agents and what something like ChatGPT is trying to achieve. So the objective of these models or these architectures are slightly misaligned. And we as a community have some thinking to do on what that means and what's the right steps uh, uh, to take next. And what I mean by this is generative agents, at least in our conception, is trying to achieve believability, right? That they should behave like human. Um, And a part of it is conflicts and fights, right? That's a part of very natural human experience. ChatGPT is not trying to achieve believability in many ways. What it's trying to be is a really useful tool. And as a part of it, uh, OpenAI has has done a lot of hard work um, to make sure that these agents don't produce behavior that's explicitly toxic or something that induces conflicts. So some of the behavior imperfection that we see in generative agents by using a model that was trained for trying to basically become a really useful tool is basically this. 
right? That the model that we're using is misaligned fundamentally with what we're trying to achieve in terms of believability. Now, an interesting question is, what is the right thing to do here? I think more and more in the future, I think we'll have the ability to train models. Um, certainly at Stanford, we have been training uh, language models on our own. Um, so recently, Arpaca came out, and there has been similar efforts in the, in the, the past few months. And I think in the future, we'll have more, certainly we'll have better compute. But we'll certainly have capacity to train these models if needed. Now, the bigger question is, do we want to do that? Um, in some cases, I think the potential benefit that we can gain by creating believable simulation might be big enough where if we do this in a very cautious and very narrow manner, such simulation might make sense. And models that can support such simulation might have their benefits. But in some cases, it might not be the case. Right, the danger of creating such models that can behave and, and output explicitly toxic content might not outweigh the benefit that we may gain by creating such believable simulations. And I think that's something that we as a community will need to continue to discuss as we go forward. And I think that's sort of a deeper point that I've been intrigued by in the past few weeks as, as we thought more about this. Yeah, um, this seems like a key part of it because it blends a lot of things together. When you mentioned the idea of we train an LLM that could output toxic content, that could engage in the type of conflict that would make it more believable, you pointed to caution as an important factor here. And that goes to all of these other debates, which are their own rabbit hole about release strategies for models and actually being able to keep them under lock and key. And so it, it seems like I was, I was going to ask you just about what are some arguments kind of on either side of this creating toxic LLMs debate that you find most compelling. And as you kind of pointed out, though, this is a very contextual question, and it really seems to be a matter of trade-offs, right? So perhaps if you were in a situation where you decide, well, I could create this model and it would be of incredible use to my research, but maybe for some reason or another, there is no way that I could keep it entirely under lock and key. Then your decision about whether to do that or not seems to become very, very different. Right. Right. And ultimately, and I do think this is, this is difficult enough question, uh, sort of a topic that um, that I think it's something that we as a community will have to iterate over. Uh, but here's my guess at the moment. So the way the, the general framework I think of, uh, that I use when thinking about these kind of topics is very similar to what we use for IRB. So that's Institutional Review Board. Um, almost all, I believe, all research institutions nowadays have it. Uh, so if you work with human subjects, uh, you're usually interacting with IRB. So basically, these are the institutions that approve your study to make sure that you're not harming the participants in, in ways. But the main argument there is studies needs any danger a study or research contribution has, ha the benefit we can gain from it has to outweigh its potential harms. 
And there are sort of two factors to this. One is as researchers, we need to be extremely clear about what those potential harms might be. And we need to be honest about the trade-offs. And in the case of sort of creating these models, so the reason why I mentioned this is I, I think you sort of need to consider two parts to this. One is what is that danger? And another is if there is that danger, is there a way to mitigate mitigate that danger while optimizing for the benefit that we might have? Now, creating something like a really, it's creating something like a model that can create really toxic content. You might be in a situation where you're obviously, if it falls under the wrong hand, it might generate misinformation or it might generate trolls that generate conflict in online communities clearly not the behavior that we want. And that's actually a quite significant harm uh, that could cause. So it's quite dangerous. Now, there might be some ways to mitigate the the danger. So one very active research area that I've been involved in in the past, and that's still an exciting area right now, is the idea of auditing. So auditing basically looks at outputs to outputs from these AI systems or algorithmic systems and tries to get to some kind of statistical understanding of their behavior so that we can understand when it's misbehaving. The fact that these models are centrally trained and distributed in some ways is a disadvantage uh, because it obviously concentrates the power in a few organizations, but it is also a benefit in some sense because we can audit them centrally a lot of systems that are easy to audit are systems that are centrally hosted. Like in the past, one of my studies looked at Google search engine. We audited a Google search engine for political bias and so forth. And when we see flaws in a centrally hosted system, then we can block it and we can stop it. So in that way, so I think, so that's one way I think you might mitigate some of these issues. Now, it's not going to be a perfect way, and that's not the only way we need to be looking into. But it's a, I think it's case in point where a, a really important research area going forward, especially if we were to have these kind of models, is un- better understanding that mitigation strategy. One might be auditing. Another might be creating the right policies around it. Um, and then ultimately, we'll have to think about, again, what are the benefits to the benefits that we gain by having believable simulation. And I think that's something that we obviously go quite a bit into the paper. So I'm not going, I may not uh, need to reiterate many of them because I think the, um, the fact that we're already excited about simulation already assumes that we're excited about the possibility of these application spaces. So being a little bit more clear eyed about the potential dangers is something that I would rather focus on for now, but you know, it's, Believable simulation will allow us to do more believable training for difficult social encounters, uh, which is something that a lot of simulation community have been interested in for a long time. So that's certainly an application space that we could benefit. More interactive games certainly is another. So basically, it's I, th- I think it's really going to come down to us making the decision on, is that worth it? In some cases, maybe. In some cases, maybe not. I think it's definitely important to have 
that that perspective. I think that a lot of people looking at this work, as you've said, are are very excited about some of those positive possibilities. And so I think that you will be augmented by any many other people in the imagination of where this research could go. So I'm I'm glad that you kind of find yourself thinking about some of these questions about what seems worth it or not. I think this is a good place to maybe pivot to some broader commentary and sort of your thoughts just on HCI kind of as a broader field. And I feel like there are maybe a few different directions we can go here. So perhaps one to connect to some of our earlier discussions is about this theme of slowness. And there are maybe a few ways in which this seems to manifest right now in other realms of research and discussions we're having in the ML community right now. I think the first one maybe has to do with HCI concerns in areas like ML interpretability. So just as you looked at slow algorithms, I think that there are a lot of studies of people using interpretability methods, being overconfident that they understand what is going on. And so I guess just sort of as a as a practitioner in this field, I'm curious how you think about this question of people are going to interact with things that use ML systems, but they're also going to have this kind of more bare interaction with those systems themselves. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious how you broadly think about some of those risks and trade-offs in designing these interfaces and making sure that these things are used responsibly. Right. So there's two parts to this. One, one certainly is a more sort of classic kind of design um, principles here. I think, especially with AI systems and any kind of piece, any piece of technology that has a lot of, I don't like the word hype, but a lot of interest around. And having hype actually is in, you know, it means people are excited and it means there are reasons to be excited. So I think in some sense, it's actually a good thing, but there can be a lot of danger in that too, right? One certainly is, you know, these kind of technologies at their best, when people understand exactly what they are and they have calibrated their expectation appropriately and they know where to best use it and where not to. Um, and to some extent, I think we've, in the recent years, struggled to basically help people calibrate what these systems can and cannot do. And I think in part of it, a part of it is because these systems do feel more human than before, but they're not, right? These are computational systems with clear limitations and clear edge cases. It's just much harder to communicate that clearly with the users. I think that's certainly one aspect of it. So we as the designers of these systems need to find a better way to certainly communicate that. And again, that's a, that's an entire research area where a lot of really interesting work is going on. So I think we're getting there, obviously. And I think in the next few years, more and more people will get, in, get interested in this area. And already we're starting to see works um, like Human AI Interaction Guidelines uh, published by the Microsoft Research made a lot of uh, a big impact in the way we view a lot of this. And I think those kind of work will continue to, continue to come out. Now, the part that does make me a little bit worried 
and I, especially this i think this relates nicely to this idea of slowness to some extent is the pace at which we're developing technology is certainly much faster than i think it used to be in the past and in some sense i think that's all again a good thing right there's a lot of interest so there's a lot of brilliant minds uh, being interested in con contributing to this field uh, there's also a lot of fun uh, funding coming in because of that interest uh, and we also have better tools for research and i think all that uh, is accelerating the pace at which we are developing new systems and a lot of innovate innovation that happens in this community it also does mean, however, that the policies and basically our design guidelines and maturity might lag behind what the system is can and cannot do today. Um, and I think a lot of these policies are at their best when they are more proactive. And this is another theme that sort of got mentioned today, but there's when we're trying to play catch up with these policies, uh, oftentimes the damage has already been done and it's, it's also hard to change people's behavior once they're set as a habit. So I think that's the one part that sort of keeps me slightly, I'd say that's one part that intrigues me going forward. Uh, how can we be much more proactive? How can we better guide this technology without lagging behind in the way we design policies and design patterns around it. And I haven't quite seen a, I think it's, that's an area that I think we as a community is still working on, that we don't have a clear answer yet. That does dovetail nicely with the other aspect of slowness I did want to ask about, which is precisely this question of capability advances coming faster and faster. It does seem like there are kind of different takes people have on this. So as you've pointed out, we have capabilities going along at one speed and lagging much behind that is work on safety research, is work on governance. Of course, you have this tortoise and the hare problem. One way to do that is just accelerate the research that is going slower, which is a very complicated problem of incentives and funding and getting the talent in the right place. And of course, we, a lot of us have seen this recent call for a, a six-month slowdown on capabilities research in order to perhaps allow for a closing of that gap. And there are many different perspectives on this. But I'm, I'm curious just what your take is on some of the different ways in which people have tried to think about mitigating this gap we're looking at. Right. So... There's a few parts to this. I think most things in life generally have a few different parts to uh, to them. Um, so there are a few arguments that I've been hearing. One is, I'll talk about OpenAI because you know, they certainly have made a lot of uh, really impressive uh, and sort of the most talked about uh, movement in this in this field recently. What OpenAI decided to do, and I, and this is not necessarily, this is something that we already all sort of uh, have observed and know about. So it's, uh, I'm sort of repeating what we already know. What OpenAI decided to do is in some sense quite unique in that they decided to release these models quite frequently, right? 
So GPT, the first GPT came out, they released it. And uh, up till GPT-2, they even released all the, the weights and so forth. And GPT-3 came out and they released it as API. And now ChatGPT and so forth. Some people are saying, obviously, that these models, the fact that they're releasing these models uh, without clearly understanding this, uh, the risks, is creating in the, the broader tech industry sort of this need to publish, need to basically bring out large language models or these new pieces of technology to the foreground, even when they might not be ready. Because one company is doing it, the other companies cannot fall behind anymore. Um, so th things might get a little bit more rushed. Another argument here is certainly that it's actually much better to test out the failures when stakes are lower, right? So GPT-3 certainly was impressive. And GPT-4, from what we're hearing from the community, again, is impressive. It can do a lot of things. But releasing GPT-4 today of course, it's it's. I don't want to jinx it, but certainly releasing releasing GPT three didn't end our our you know wasn't the end of uh, of humanity as we know it. Like very far from it. It's, it was a cool piece of technology, but you know we're not close to being uh, being some sort of the the worst case scenario events. So another certainly on the argument is it's actually much better to let the society adapt to it gradually by having these pieces of technology released slowly. And I think there's truth in both directions. Um, I do think there's actually something quite nice. The fact that ChatGPT is actually quite polite, as I mentioned, quite collaborative. I think that actually does suggest something quite nice and in impressive about sort of this kind of release model where OpenAI basically had enough time to get feedback from the community and develop models and fine tune them enough where it would mitigate a lot of the dangers that we first had worried about. So I think that certainly is something that, um, that I'm intrigued by, by that release model. I am, of course, a little bit concerned that it did mean that a lot of companies are now releasing large language models in all their product lines. And we don't really understand what that means as a community. It might be okay, or there might be some points where it might break and there, it might cause some concerns. And I think it's something that we'll need to continue, we might need to continue to watch out for. Jan Lakey of OpenAI, I think, raised a very similar concern, just that with the advent of some of the newer models, ChatGPT especially, and how that's captured the imagination as you've said, it does seem like there's this race dynamic and everybody's scrambling to integrate LLMs in everywhere. And that does seem to lend its way to a lot of correlated failures. I guess it always feels like there has to be some kind of middle ground in these things. You know, you wonder, can we start deploying them in low stakes contexts? But I think people are just so excited that I have to be an AI first company, whatever that's supposed to mean, that they want to be able to display, hey, we are using this state of the art technology 
And that is going to have some impact on the people who might be willing to invest in them, the customers who might eventually buy. And so you have this, again, kind of structural incentive-based setup where I think people might be a lot more willing to integrate LLMs into pretty critical workflows and critical pieces of infrastructure than, as you said, maybe they should at this point. And I, I think that's ultimately that's ultimately where a typical HCI person basically would say this to the current phenomenon. You know, when we're releasing new piece of technology, when we're developing them, we like to use the term human centered. And what that basically means is it's not a technology that matters first. It's we first want to understand what we're trying to achieve and whether the piece of technology that we're using makes sense to achieve that. Right. So I think incorporating a large language model just because it's the, the coolest piece of technology that we have today might not be so human centered. Um, and I think that adhering to that principle where it makes sense, I think it's oftentimes, well, I would advocate. Of course, it's, I do recognize that it's uh, from the corporate perspective, it's a, it's a trickier situation because you know, there's the corporate interest and these are companies that are trying to make money. And so the balancing that, uh, that conflict is not the easiest in, in real life. The, the reframing from this very algorithmic-centered perspective, which probably comes naturally to many technical people, to starting from the goal and working backwards from there to what is appropriate, seems like a really valuable takeaway. Perhaps as a final question for you, June, I think you've, you've related a lot of important insights and ideas from the HCI perspective. Just as a sort of a, a last thing here, though, is there anything else that you would say to somebody listening to this who is a technologist, whether they're an academic, an industry, as far as what you think that technologists could do better or learn or do differently, kind of taking some ideas from, from HCI? So I think just... Because I'm usually the last person to tell other people what to do or how to do things differently. So I frame this more as uh, here's sort of my philosophy as, as someone who's contributing to this uh, field of technology and computing. Ultimately, we build, we do what we do to benefit people. We do things because we think our work is cool, ultimately because we think this will enable people to do more things that's more meaningful to them, uh, that can augment their capacity to achieve whatever they want to achieve. Um, and I think it's important. It's something that's both obvious, but in practice, it's something that we can sometimes forget about. That you know, sometimes I think in the, in the moment we might pursue technology for the sort of basically for the, for the goal of pursuing the, technology. I'm not sure if that's the, the best way to say it, but I think always keeping in mind that there's we're engineers to some extent and we're researchers, but we are also building technology that will impact the lives of people very directly in the, in the near future. So I think always being mindful of the fact that what we, the reason why we do this 
is to empower people and not sort of the other way around where we're not basically creating technology for the sake of creating technology, I think is, uh, is something that I personally try to keep in mind as I do this and being very honest about where the risks are and where the benefits are. I think it's, it's a, it's not something that's always easy to do, especially being extremely honest about certain things because you know, what you create, you want to believe will do good than harm. Um, but being very honest and keeping very clear eyes about them, I think is something that at least I try to do in, in the work that I do. I think that is a great takeaway and a great place to end. So June, thank you for being so generous with your time. This was a fantastic conversation. You're a very thoughtful researcher, and I'm very excited to see where some of these directions you're exploring and thinking about go. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for the uh, the interest in the work that we've been doing. And I just mentioned that, obviously, this uh, the work that I've been doing and that we talked about today uh, couldn't have been done without the amazing collaborators and mentors that I've had. So um, if, you, if any of the listeners or you uh, have a chance to take a look at the, the work that we've done, uh, kudos to all the amazing co-authors that I had along the, along the journey. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.